Welcome to my podcast. My name is Jamin Gerker. I'm a realtor in South Central Alaska, and my mission is to help people build intentional and significant legacies for themselves and their families by coaching them in real estate. So uh, without further ado, let me go ahead and introduce you to Bill Yuri. He is a uh, listing agent working primarily with new construction. He's been in the industry for a long time. Um, used to climb Mount Denali quite a bit. So yeah, Bill, seriously, if, uh, if I did that, I would be, int- that would be the first thing anyone would ever know about me. It would be completely unbearable. <laughs> well, that, that, that was my younger me. Now I just write snow machines. Gotcha. Young Bill was a complete animal. <laughs> Outstanding. And we also have Tiffany that's going to be joining us as well from First Rate Financial. And she's going to be answering questions about the, the financial side of what it looks like doing, uh, doing new construction. And she's going to be providing us some of the numbers because I know a lot of this stuff can seem um, a lot of this stuff can seem kind of like we're just talking a lot of theories and a lot of um you know, a whole lot of theories without a whole lot of um, actual on the ground um, applicability. And really those numbers is what kind of grounds everything. So Tiffany, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. So um, real quick before we get started, I'm going to go ahead and jump in here and just ask you guys uh, real quick, just kind of in a nutshell, what is your Alaska story? You know, because everyone's got a, got a different uh, different journey that it took to get here. And let's see, Tiffany, let's, uh, let's go and start with you. I, I I see the hesitation there first. I'm going to pick on you. Oh, okay. (laughs) I was like, Oh, uh, where did I come from? I, (laughs) I, I was born out of state, but we moved up here when I was three and I lived in a native village off Lake Iliamna. And, um, it was, I don't know if you've heard of Pedro Bay, but it's a cross pile bay. And which is across the mountains from Williamsport, uh, which is across from the Kenai Peninsula. So that's how people get things to them is is taking off from Homer and going across to Williamsport, going through the mountains. And some people take their fishing vessels through Lake Iliamna to get on the other side. But um, I that's not how I moved there. I moved there in a little plane. And our only transportation was four wheelers. And um, the house that we lived in was uh, basically just wood that was painted white. (laughs) Uh, So very uh, rural Alaskan uh, childhood. And I only ate fast food once. And then we moved to Anchorage when I was, I think I was in third grade. So. You know, I think that's probably the most off-grid, like legitimately off-grid thing that I've heard in a while. <laughs> probably. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, it was very exciting to have an Astro van uh, in, in Anchorage. And and I didn't know who Britney Spears was or NSYNC or any of those bands until I moved to Anchorage. And then grew up in Alaska, lived in the Valley, um, went to high school at Colony, and then... Um, moved to Homer because I had some friends there and lived in Ketchikan. And now I'm back up here because I like to be central. Outstanding. Well, Bill, what's, uh, how'd you get here? Well, I came here uh, directly from Flagstaff, Arizona, where I was, I got a degree in business administration marketing from Northern Arizona University. 
And this is my 40th year in Alaska, and it's my 40th wedding anniversary this year as well, because the uh, I met a wonderful woman at uh, NAU that was studying teaching, and she's now my wife, and uh, we're still together and happy. And, and so uh, she was from Alaska and had been here actually since 1965, and uh, one year after the big earthquake took place up here. And she wanted to stay in Arizona. I wanted to come to Alaska to climb mountains. Because I was time into technical rock climbing down in Arizona and and I had climbed Mount Rainier before in the Seattle area and uh, Washington State. And so I wanted to climb mountains and that's what I did. We came up here and I worked and uh, climbed mountains and summited McKinley and was uh, into all kinds of Alaskan adventures, which is one of the reasons I think most people out there should move to Alaska because it is a great state to live in. We have world-class fishing, hunting. And of course I had, at that time I had five cousins all living on Kodiak Island that were all king crab fishermen. They fished for salmon during the summer, gill netting. And of course I'd see the bear they were shooting and, the, and hearing of, they seen these pictures of the fish they were catching. And I just had to have a part of it. So anyway, uh, Married into a fishing family, and uh, you know, a family did fishing most of the time, and and it's just a great place to live. And uh, I retired from climbing quite a few years ago, and really enjoy being a realtor, uh, doing new construction work in the valley. Outstanding. Well, on that note, then uh, we've already got some questions rolling in here, so we'll go ahead and answer a, a couple of these, and then I we'll go ahead and get. Um, kind of the, the pre-planned questions that I made ahead of time. So coming in from Mr. Brandon, is it best to buy land than build or do both at once? I'll answer that one. It's best to do both at once. So what we can do is uh, depending, um, you know, the first thing to do is to find the lot. And then generally what happens is the builder buys the lot and you go in and, and subordinates the lot into the construction process and then you get title to the lot and to the house being built on that lot uh, at recording time. Now sometimes occasionally it's done differently than that but that is kind of the standard way at least it's being done uh, but if someone does have a lot and you want a good builder to build on that lot for you you know we can always take a look at it and uh, uh, you know Peter Abernoff is willing to build in other areas uh, if it makes if it makes sense and it's not geographically too far from where he does the majority of his building. Right. All right. Well, got a quick follow-up question here. What size lots are you building on in the valley? Um, usually, correct me if I'm wrong, usually they seem to be more closer to an acre. It's like usually that 0.92 is kind of where it's at. Is that kind of what you see a lot of, Bill? Well, you know, what I'm seeing is a couple things is you've got different types of people. There are some people that don't want to see their neighbors. There's some that want to live in more of a residential neighborhood that's Alaskan. And you've got, uh, and you've got others that, uh, that want to be on a river or on a lake. And what's really nice is all of that is available out in the valley. And what's an interesting statistic I just heard recently was that one out of every two new construction houses is being built that's built in Alaska is being built in the Valley. So uh, a lot of building going on, but at the place where uh, Peter does a lot of his building at, uh, most of the acre, most of the lots right now run a half acre. 
but we do have lots coming up this summer that are going to be two and a half acres to as large as almost 3.91 acres, I think was the largest few lot. And you're right, Jamin, there are a lot of lots in some areas uh, that that are uh, that are much bigger and they're are close to an acre. Um, biggest one that Peter's built on that I've worked with him on was four acres and we actually bought several lots, put them together and, and made a pretty big house on it. Outstanding. All right, we've got one more question and then we're, we're gonna keep moving here. So another question coming in from Mr. Axel, and I know he's coming up from, from Florida. So his question is about warranty on equipment. I'm assuming we're talking about appliances and on the roof. Obviously in Florida, um, having stuff on the roof with hurricanes and everything, is gonna be a big deal. Um, you know, what's the warranties look like up here in Alaska and do people find themselves using those warranties frequently? Well, the builder, um, different warranties are available, but the standard builder warranty is a one-year warranty. Um, and that really applies to anything structural in the house or anything that had to do with the building of the house, the roof trusses, the, the um, and generally the appliances are covered by the individual appliance warranty. Because again, the builder really doesn't have any say over that. That really gets down to the standard manufacturer's warranty. There used to be a time when the builder used to cover all that, but it seems as some of the appliances are maybe less quality appliances than they used to be, it just became too uncertain. Now one can, and some lenders require a 10 year warranty. And if that is required, uh, those are available to purchase where you can get a longer warranty. And there's another beautiful little trick out there, or not trick, but just something you can do is you can buy an extended warranty on the appliances and as much as you want it to cover on the house, which is really a smart and safe way to go. Outstanding. So Tiffany, can you speak any as far as the, um, on the lending side, what, what warranties are, are required or when a, a more extensive warranty would be required? Uh, I'd say it, it depends on the lender that we partner with. For us, we're a brokerage, so we work with multiple wholesale lending companies. And uh, depending on the loan type and underwriting standards based on that loan type and the lender, um, they might have additional overlays, but it, it depends on the scenario with the house and the loan type and whether or not they require any sort of extended warranty. Outstanding. Outstanding. All right, guys, we'll definitely keep the questions rolling in here. Um, let me go ahead and ask a couple questions real quick. And um, what is the current outlook for new construction in Alaska and also looking specifically at the Matsu Valley? You know, I'm um, obviously we have the, the regular market updates. I'm sure a lot of you that are, are you know, watching do pay attention to those. Um, you know, we've got some interesting developments happening in the Matsu Valley yesterday, or I'm sorry, um, yeah, in the Matsu Valley yesterday for Anchorage, uh, we showed that year to date, there's actually been a decrease in the average sold price year to date. But, you know, once we start peeling back the layers and looking at, okay, average size for the properties decreased by 150 square feet, the sample size we have to draw from actually um, decreased by 100 when, I mean, so last year in January, 
109 properties, 90 properties sold this year, 90 in the month of January. So the sample size went down to pretty much an unusable statistical amount. And um, yeah, so there, there's a lot of stuff flying around right now. Um, you know, what does it kind of feel like on the new construction side right now? Are you guys really feeling anything different or is this kind of just business as usual? Well, I would say there's been a, a definite, um, we had a period, well, let me put it this way. Historically, what's happened is since pre-COVID, the cost to build a new construction house has increased about 35%, which is a big number. So if you built a house prior to COVID, uh, the cost to build that house were about 35% less. And 35% is an average. Some builders are a little less, some are a little bit more. Um, what's interesting is, uh, 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 Tiffany and I both sat in on a new construction mastermind here last week, and we have a group of us, all the, many of the realtors all get together, and we meet once a month, and we talk about that very subject. And, and what's really happening right now is what's really red hot are homes that are, are somewhere between 600000 and less, especially 500000 and less. Um, and there's an also, there, there tends to be quite a bit of building uh, we're seeing more building in the million dollar range and above. So again, there are people that are leaving uh, different areas that have cashed out of their homes and they want that uh, that forever home up here and, and, and have the money and sometimes cash to do that. Where we're seeing at the slowest really is in, is in the, and I think it's really based on interest rates right now. And uh, interest rates are not my area of expertise, but uh, Tiffany can sure talk about that. Uh, but we are seeing uh, we are seeing some positive developments and a real uptick in the amount of activity, especially I'd say within the last three weeks up here. It really has started to explode, and there are a lot of homes being built right now in various price ranges in various areas in Alaska. And it seems the closer you are to commute location to get to one of the military bases. Joint Base Elmendorf Richardson, or to get to Anchorage if you're a commuter, or Eagle River. Um, and Anchorage is about a half, half hour away, um, roughly. That property is a little more expensive. The farther travel time you are, the, the larger the lots tend to get, and the more um, and the less expensive the lots become. So there's a, there's a good variety of land still available for everyone up here. Outstanding. So Tiffany. Um, Million dollar question. What the heck is going on with interest rates? <laughs> I don't know if it's worth a million dollars, but uh, <laughs> rate, rates uh, are are up. And that's, you know, it's not so high that it's not feasible, but um, rates are up because of inflation. Inflation is what impacts rates and inflation is what impacts rates and inflation is what impacts rates. So I try to remind everyone rates are there they move up and down based off whatever inflation's doing and um the inflation is is high right now and there's supposed to be an updated cpi report next uh week if you don't know what a cpi report is it's a report where over ninety thousand different companies come together and give you um their how much they've sold in the past month and that will measure inflation. And so every time that CPI report has been coming out since last year, 
uh, it keeps going down. And every time that happens, the rates go down. And so uh, just as of today, the rates went up because of a couple of different things, but there was a CEO survey about recession and a couple other things, but that made the rates go up. So if the rates are going down, it's, it's going down like this, like more of like that. Can't really decide if it's just going to go like this. And so um, I, what, what I try to advise for everybody is you, you can buy a house, you can lock the rate, but just make sure you're making a good financial decision long-term. And so that whenever you do lock it, you recuperate the cost within a time frame that makes sense to you. Um, and, and I'm open to giving advice on that as well, but I'll, I'll show you the math and I'll walk you through it, compare the monthly principal and interest, what the cost is, how long it takes to recuperate that, uh, so that if there is another refinance opportunity in the next 12 to 24 months, does it make sense to pay so much in discount points for a lower interest rate? Um, the last thing you want to do is is refinance too soon and lose out on all the costs that you already put towards the house up front. Um, so rates can vary depending on if you're going under a government loan program or a conventional loan program. It depends on your credit score, depends on your debt ratio. Um, the higher the debt ratio, the more it impacts what your pricing looks like. And uh, what I recommend too is um, don't, don't try to pay off any loans right before you apply for a house. Uh, if anything, you could pay money towards a credit card balance but don't pay it off to zero. Uh, but if you pay it down just to like between 10 and 30% of the credit limit, then that will help your credit score go up so that you're prepared to buy a place, but don't spend all your money on paying off your debt if you need some money for down payment. So. Right, absolutely. So we did have one question came in that I, I thought you know would actually be a great one for you. So coming in hot from Brandon. How do APRs compare on new construction versus existing homes? So real quick, can you explain to, explain to everyone what an APR is? Yeah. Uh, so the APR stands for annual percentage rate. And APR with new construction versus uh, existing homes doesn't really change on, on my end. It might at another institution, but... Uh, we're a wholesale mortgage brokerage, so we work with multiple lenders, and um, each lender might have different pricing. Um, annual percentage rate, assume the fact that you're keeping the loan for 30 years without extra money towards your principal, without refinancing the home, without selling the home. And so um, keep in mind that APR is is impact that pricing um it, it's not the same it's not different between new construction and existing if that makes sense got it okay so i guess kind of looking at the at the cost then because i mean this is a this is a question i do get fairly often from people um how you know is it going to be really expensive more expensive um going with a um going with new construction versus going with uh, with a resale property um you're kind of running the the numbers on your side 
Um, Tiffany, just with the, the loans you guys have sold to lenders before, um, what are the what are the numbers look like? Yeah. So, what does it look like if we're looking at the um, uh, if we're looking at the um, the math? Like, is it more expensive to go with new construction, or is it you know comparable to go with the resale property? Oh, that's a good question. It's it's like the exact same. Um, if anything, you're, it, it's buying a house for seven hundred and twenty thousand, or you can buy an existing home for seven hundred and twenty thousand, and it's going to have the same pricing. Uh, the only difference is the condition of the property. Does that make sense? You know, it uh, it certainly does. Okay. Um, so, Bill, does the does with doing a new construction loan, um, it, how in y'all's experience, how does that differ from a from a usual loan? Because I've heard of, you have to have more as a down payment up front. There might be some non-refundable, you know, costs up front. Like what's yeah, gen, as a general rule, like I want to be educated here. Oh, so sure. No. As a general rule, it, it varies. But um, let's say if you're going to build a hypothetically, let's say you're going to build a home for about seven hundred thousand. Um, you would generally need to put about 1% down um, at the time of the offer and the time the contract is written. And then there's what we call a notice to proceed, which takes place, which is where after the plans are drawn up, the lot is selected, we've agreed on how, the, how it's going to be built and everything is finalized, then generally another 2% at that point. And, the, and what we do both to protect the buyer and to protect the builder is we're in a very unusual time, just like Tiffany mentioned, where we have supply issues and prices are all over the place. And they're just like that little chart she was talking about there. They're moving around. And so you just can't say that the price, for example, for uh, the trusses is going to be the same one month to the next. So what the, uh, what Peter generally does and what a lot of builders do is if there is, if the cost of building that house does not increase more than 2%, um, the builder absorbs that increase. If it's more than 2%, then the buyer would pay the cost of that increase, but there would be no markup on that cost. You know, it would be passed directly on to the buyer and there's, that's informed at the time, you know, because there's, um, it's just been pretty crazy. You know, you think of 35% over two years, you, you just can't break that down monthly. It was just all over the place. Well, that's kind of how that works. And the other thing I would say is you probably are going to get a little better value for your money if you bought a new construction house that maybe was um, built pre-COVID because the cost to build that house at that time was lower. Um but many people don't want to live in a house that someone else has built and they want to design it and they want to pick out all the colors themselves and, and pick the lot and just make it theirs. And so you can't do that when you're buying another house. And that's the beauty of new construction. So it really gets down to how long are you going to be in that house? You know, they say the average person's in a house, maybe seven to 10 years. Um, there's a lot of people that aren't average. So are you buying that house for a few years or you're buying it for your for your forever home or somewhere in between? So it's a lot of decisions to make in that process. Absolutely. All right. Well, I've kind of neglected our, our comment section for too long. So we've uh, 
So we got some questions here. Let's weigh in. So number so one, catching up with this. <laughs> got some catching up to do here. So coming in from uh, Costa 16 Auto, would a family of four with two middle schoolers have a safe life moving to the valley? Um, so I'm I'm just going to answer this for me, and I'll let you guys let you guys put in your own two cents. Um, the word safe to me is always kind of one of those buzzwords because it, it's very subjective based on kind of what you're used to, what your experiences are. The best advice I can give you, do some kind of a, a crime map, get a sense for you know what's going on in the immediate area, and then take it a step further and look at the crime map for where you currently live. Because I guarantee you, it's probably going to give you a, a little bit better of a, a perspective on where you currently live too. Uh, I've had some people that have done it and they're like, holy cows. Yeah, this is such a, a God, God-ridden city that I live in. <laughs> we need to get over there as soon as we can. I thought the, the crime map in Alaska looked bad till I looked at mine. <laughs> so that's, that's number one. Um, number two, you know, I'm, you know, single guy living out here in the Valley. To me, it, I honestly feel less safe when I'm traveling. Um, that that's kind of my experience. Um, you can certainly, you know, ask some other folks that are parents up here too, and kind of get their expect uh, get their experiences. But you know, by and large, I've not really felt it uh, to be an unfriendly or you know hostile place. So you have to just kind of do your do your research, do your crime map stuff, and make sure it's right for you. Though, um, you guys have anything you want to add to that? You know, I'd, I'd add that, um, you know, in, in the area where uh, where Elisha Custom Homes does a lot of their building, uh, it's called the Ranch or Viewpoint at the Ranch. Um, it's a great, it's a great neighborhood and kids play outside during the day. Um, people watch their speed in the neighborhood driving, there's street lights. Um, the biggest danger in the neighborhood is if a moose happens to wander through the neighborhood, you know, but, but in terms of other people, um, there's, there's a lot of military that live in the area. There tend to be quite a few policemen that live in the area and it's, it's, it's just a great community. And, and that's why people move there is for the sense of community. Now, if you get to be, you know, in more of an isolated area, it's like anything there's, there's good and bad everywhere. And, um, uh, but the valley, I would say, is generally much safer than it might be if you were living in downtown Anchorage, for example. And there are spots of areas that are more dangerous than others. And uh, it's always good to do your research when you're thinking of moving to a particular area just to see what's out there. And and uh, we can always advise you what's, uh, you know, some of the differences. Tiffany, what are your thoughts? <laughs> uh, my thoughts are, I don't know. I, I, I grew up in, in the middle of nowhere. So I know what it's like to be surrounded by grizzly bears. And so I think as far as safety goes, um, the, the one, I think it's, it's having a level of respect for the wildlife here in Alaska. Um, so if there's moose everywhere during the winter and during the summer too, and if I'm walking my dog at night, um, I, I try to keep an eye out for moose and that's probably the most dangerous thing I can come across. And so wear your safety vest, wear your headlamp, um, have your light flashers on if you're under 
your fat tire bike or whatever. Um, it, I think it's it's just being aware of, of how to keep yourself safe wherever you go, whether it's on a hiking trail, you're fishing, wear a life jacket. Um, if you're ice fishing, uh, think about how thick the ice is. Are people already on the ice? Are people driving their car on the ice? Is it safe enough? So just being aware of, of what's around you. And I think, I think you'll be okay. I hope that answers the question. Outstanding. <laughs> Outstanding. Yeah. I'm, I'm usually more concerned about the wildlife than, um, than human dangers, yeah. honestly, like you almost get run over multiple times by moose while out on runs and uh, you get a new respect for uh get a new respect for wildlife. Um, let's go and, go to this question real quick. How do you build for earthquake protection? Well, there's, there's, uh, we are in a seismic zone up in Alaska here. And so there are a lot of uh, building codes that address uh, building uh, seismically. And so it has to do with bracing that um, connects the foundation to the structure, um, to the wood structure and from floor to floor and, and those are just a requirement and the building inspectors are inspecting for that. And just to add one thing, we do get wind in Alaska because you know, we're like anywhere, even the lower 48, you know, get these, we saw in, in upper state New York, those heavy winds they had that and the super cold temperatures. But you know, the, you know, most of the shingles are built to a, a, you know, to a hurricane gale force winds they're directly glued down on the front of the shingles just to make it so it's uh, um, it's protected from that. But there's we a lot of rules up here and, and we're, the builders are not allowed to do what they want. They have to follow codes to structurally make it safe. We tend to use heavier quality garage doors. So when the winds are blowing hard, they're not going to be a problem and collapse the doors. So, so heavier, heavier garage doors is another area that we deal with seismically. Yeah, I mean, one thing I would add to that as well, I mean, they, Anchorage pretty much got leveled back in 64 when the earthquake ran, um, just rumbled through here. And, um, you know, it just got completely leveled. And we had the earthquake back in 2018. What most people don't know is the intensity of the shakes was actually the same as what it was before. The only difference was the one back in 64 lasted a lot longer, but the the intensity of the shakes themselves were actually very comparable. And I mean, we had a couple houses in some very unique circumstances that ended up taking a lot of damage, but by and large, like it, you know, I'm mostly cosmetic kind of stuff, not all of them, obviously, but you can certainly see how those, those building requirements definitely played a big role. You know, interesting story I can share is, uh, um, I just worked with a seller that had a home that had been uh, a bluff house that had gone through an earthquake and took on a lot of damage. And this was in Eagle River. Eagle River near Joint Base Elmendorf Richardson got the brunt of the last big earthquake we had a couple years ago. And basically, if you can think of this, it raised part of the house, it brought it down, and then it separated. And so major, major damage. Thank God these folks had earthquake insurance, with which the majority of Alaskans don't have. And they spent almost $390,000 that insurance picked up to fix that house. 
and more or less it was a new house on the inside. And we were able to turn around and sell that house for substantially more than what it was worth because it was basically a new house. So um, if you're in an area that you really want to build in and it's in an er more of a seismic, higher seismic area than others, Eagle River might be a good example of that. Um, have, considering that insurance, if you can afford it, is, is, uh, is a wise move. Outstanding. All right. I'm just going to address uh, one quick thread going on in the comments section real quick. I'm going to be very brief on this. I don't want to end up in a Russian briefing room somewhere. Um, how do you think the war that is coming to the U.S. is going to affect the raw land prices in Alaska? Um, personally, I don't really anticipate there being a big war. Again, I don't want to end up in a briefing room somewhere, but uh, the logistical challenge of getting to Alaska just without inter any interference is just staggering and um, seeing how it's tough for Russia at the moment to roll up a country that they're joined to by land. I don't even want to know how they'd be able to handle getting across the Bering Sea with with enough of a supply line to sustain any kind of a campaign. So I'm going to address that and we're moving on from that comment thread. <laughs> All right, real quick. Uh, let's see here. For Bill again here, do you put in septic well and electric only if I own a lot? Yes, um, we, we, can, uh, we can put in the septic, we can put in the well, and electricity can be run to the lot as well. And really the, the costs really have to do with how far you are away from the hubs that the electricity is going to come from and gas you know we have a lot of gas heat up here in alaska good supply of gas so the gas line is one of the more expensive items to run as well and so it just gets down you know we can uh, get the matsu borough involved and the different uh the different utility companies and can get costs for that to run all that to the house but yes all that can be taken care of uh, by the builder okay outstanding and uh, real quick, got a shout out from Catherine McAdams. So <laughs> Tiffany, Alaska mortgage loan originator, NMLS 1166331. You are amazing. She's a total pro. Folks, there we go. Thanks, Catherine. <laughs> All right. Got a question here from Mr. Sean. Is now a good time to buy land and build a vacation cabin? Not sure how the best loan type would be, though. Um, HELOC or standard loan, how is the Airbnb, VRBO rentals in Alaska? I live in Washington. So, um, Tiffany, you know, first off, what are your thoughts as far as, you know, the, um, I guess, the uh, the lending options as far as that would go? Yeah, uh, that's a great question. Vacation cabin is different than a single family home. But um, if there, if you have a cabin that's like a house, um, that would be considered a single family and financeable for a standard second home loan or vacation home. Uh, you can go that route, or if it's a legitimate like dry cabin, um, a lot of people have dry cabins up here um, with the incinerating toilets or um, water tanks or something that's not considered the norm. Uh, that can go through a smaller institution uh, like Matanuska Valley Federal Credit Union is a really good one for cabin loans. Uh, First National Bank of Alaska, Alaska USA, 
I do have some people that want to use equity out of their home to be able to purchase land or a cabin. So you can do that through a HELOC or a cash out refinance if you have enough equity in your home. Um, and typically a HELOC can take anywhere from 30 to 45 days, depending on the lender. And then for cash out refis, that can take anywhere from 45 to 60 days, depending on how long it takes to get the appraisal back and how long it takes for your approval to, to go through. And it also depends on the lender because all of them have different turnaround times. And uh, did I answer Airbnb and VRBR, VRBO rentals in Alaska? Yeah, you know, I can speak a little bit to that. Um, the issue you're going to run into with Airbnbs and VRBOs, where it makes more sense is where they're going to start really cracking down on Airbnbs. Because in Alaska, people don't come here to come hang out in the metropolis of Anchorage. You know, population 300 and is it 80,000? It might be 380, might be might be 330, one of those two numbers, but somewhere in there. Closer to 330, way, yeah. Closer yeah. to 330, okay, okay. Either way, we're not talking about like a Miami or something like that. Usually the reason people are coming here is they want to find the, the small, cute, rustic Alaska community and kind of get a sense of being off the grid and disconnecting a little bit. Um, those little communities, they, I mean, I'm looking at Seward, I'm looking at Homer, they have an enormous dependency on the hospitality industry and the tourism industry. And a lot of these folks have started converting their properties over to Airbnb uh, to the point where there is starting to become some, some local regulation, um, just depending on the community. So Airbnb can work great. It just really depends on what's going on in the, uh, the local political scene and what the feeling is on the ground. Um, there are some communities well, let's, let's just take Seward, for instance. Um, I'll name names. Um, not a particularly big housing market. I was looking at it a little bit ago. They had like, I think it was upwards of like 300 like Airbnbs that were down there. It was just a staggering proportion of the overall housing down there. And I mean, I understand why. Like you get, a, you get an Airbnb down there, like you're set. But... They're starting to, to really crack down on it because what it does is it, you know, draw, I mean, we've all, you know, read the, the concerns about it. it, drives up the costs of the area, starts pushing the, uh, the local population out. I can kind of see it from both sides because, you know, on the other hand, you know, the reason we don't have a whole lot of housing is probably because local government hasn't done a good job at encouraging building over the years. So I'm not going to completely put that on the shoulders of the, of the homeowners just wanting to, to use their property. Um, so the long answer to your question, um, the places it's going to be most valuable. You have to really pay attention to what's going on on the ground. Um, Anchorage, Eagle River, Matsu Valley, you can certainly do Airbnb. I haven't heard anything yet of them starting to crack down on it, but you know, it's just something you want to want to keep an eye on. Um, Bill, do you have any? Well, the only thing I would add would be each each subdivision is generally going to have their rules that they need to follow, and you just want to read those in detail and just be sure that if you plan to do something like that, that it's allowed in that particular subdivision if you're building new, and that's uh, that's really going to dictate whether it can happen or can't happen 
and uh, we're pretty safe. You know, Alaska is still the last frontier, and we don't have nearly as many rules up here as you have down on the in other parts of the U.S. Yeah, I mean, usually it's like you know, uh, no broken down snow machines in your front yard, and you know, put the chickens away every now and then. It's usually pretty pretty basic stuff, especially in the Matsu Valley. <laughs> I mean, it's always funny whenever you find an association in the Matsu because it's an association made up of people who don't like associations. <laughs> so true. And there are and, a lot, there's lots of land available without any kind of homeowner associations where, where you're pretty much free to do what you want. And that has its good and bad aspects to it. Yep. You never absolutely. know what your neighbor may be. Absolutely. All right. So I wanted to answer this question. Uh, coming in from Victoria Baden. So I know this is about building homes, but can you discuss the schools? Our schools here are ranked number one for safety. And I was surprised to hear that Alaska is 49 overall for K through 12. And she is uh, coming from the great state of Florida. So obviously I don't have any kids in, in school. Um, I did work as a substitute teacher for a while over at the Anchorage school district. Um, you know, that was, uh, that was a good experience because I got to pretty much sample each one of these, these schools um, very, very quickly that way. But do you guys have any insights as to what the schools are like up here? You know, I, I can address that. Um, I, I'm married to a uh, retired school teacher of 40 years and uh, have been around teaching in a lot of different schools. Um, the the reason that we're ranked 49 is because Alaska is so diverse and so big, we have a lot of very isolated communities, especially out in what we would refer to as rural Alaska, where they're little tiny villages on a river and they're spread out. And so we don't have the a great infrastructure to allow them to learn at the rate that you would if you were in Anchorage, Fairbanks, or some of the, you know, the major cities we have here. We have an excellent school system. And in fact, out in the valley, there's uh, one of the elementary schools that is uh, close by to the ranch is one of two that won a national award for a STEM school uh, that was a national award. Um, so we have excellent schools. We have one of the largest school districts in Anchorage of anywhere in the US. And so because it is so large, uh, it's like anywhere, there are good teachers, uh, but generally we, we don't have many of the problems that, that we hear about on the news that are taking place, and not to pick on California, but in, but in some of the more, uh, in some other communities around the country, let's put it that way. Um, but generally we have good schools and we have private schools up here. So there's a good choice of schools and the learning kids come out here do do really, really well. But it's that, it's the amount of native community that we have and, and, you know, for example, internet is being put into some of these very rural areas right now. Without internet, you're you're really kind of you just don't have that communication lifeline with the rest of the world. Yep, absolutely. Um, Tiffany, is there anything else you'd like to add to that? I think Bill uh, said it perfectly. So yeah, uh, I, I know, like I when I lived in the village, it there was like nine kids, and we were all different ages. So as far as like the, it, depending on the village and the population size, it, it's not a very measurable situation. And so uh, it wasn't until I moved to Anchorage that there was 
diverse, you know, options. And um, from like private school to a Spanish immersion school, charter schools, uh, then you've got the public system, um, which there's really good programs with those. It, there's so many different options that are exceptional for, for you know, any age range. And I, I think what Bill said totally hits the nail on the head. Yeah, I mean, another thing to, to just kind of look at too, anytime we're talking about national rankings, um, I kind of roll my eyes a little bit because Alaska is just such a small sample size of any sliver. It doesn't matter which category we're looking at. It's either going to be ridiculously low or it's going to be ridiculously high. Like we're just, it's such an extreme state. So anytime you try adding Alaska into it, it's it's very tough to statistically do it because it's such a small sample size that most statisticians would probably just throw it out if it just showed up on, you know, a piece of paper as a math problem. You can't do that to an entire state, so that doesn't happen. But yeah, it's yeah, it's a uh, it's a problem. It's a problem. Small sample size. All right. So we've got a question real quick here from Morris. Um, does Wasilla have good cable internet, good enough to be a remote worker? Uh, what do you guys think? Yes. Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. There's, there's Absolutely. Lots of I just set up Starlink remotely uh, near Glen mm -hmm. Allen at a cabin. So it, Oh, it's, Lord. We're about to get so many yeah. questions on that. Oh, God. <laughs> it, um, it's, it's great. So you can, you can be a remote worker. I work from home sometimes. So. Yeah. I mean, I would say that I, I primarily work from home in Wasilla and it's usually just, just not a problem. Um, I am not sophisticated enough to have a Starlink just yet. Um, but I mean, it's certainly something that I'm thinking about. How something long that everybody's to, talking about. Yeah. 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 Like how, how long do you have to be on that Starlink wait? Party to, uh, to get. I heard there was like a. Yeah, I heard there was like a wait list for like six months or something like that. But I, I oh, could. Wow. Yeah, I could just be looking at headlines and have no clue. I, yeah, I, uh, I think I signed up for mine. Um, what like long before the fall? Like the the day that I heard about it is when I signed up for mm -hmm. it, and they mail you the equipment, and then. The, I, I don't actually think I got my equipment until Alaska was ready for Starlink and it's so fast. Um, but if you're in a rural area where it's like, it's rated for, I think it's like negative 22 degrees. Um, so it wasn't working when it was like negative 40, but um, when it, it, and that's not in Wasilla, it, it doesn't really get that cold here, but out where the cabin was, um, my, I was able to work remotely out there just fine and stream videos and um, do all the Netflix and because it was too cold to go outside. But yeah, that helps answer your question. <laughs> it does. It does. One thing I have heard, though, is you have to have a direct line of communication from the house or wherever it's positioned yeah. to the satellite. And if you yeah. have a lot of trees on the property, it won't work. It'll It'll be a problem, yeah. Yeah. It has to have like open space. Got it. Okay. That is good to know. Either that, so either uh, clear some trees or you better, um, better get your, uh, your little tree house in the back already for, for living up here in the winter. 
which could make a great Airbnb. All right, real quick from Sean here, actually talking about Airbnb. So I don't necessarily need to do an Airbnb rental. This is kind of going back to what we mentioned before. But uh, yeah, just trying to make a few bucks once in a while since I don't exactly know how much I'll be there. And I think that's perfectly fine. Um, You can certainly do kind of a long-term rental. One space that's kind of underutilized right at the moment is the intermediate term rental market. And that's where it's, it's fully furnished. And it's going to be a, a higher rent income than if it's just a long-term rental. But these are leases that are six, like a, a month up to like six months. So that's a pretty underutilized market right at the moment. Um, now that I've said it, you know, we'll see if it stays that way. But it's a pretty underutilized. You have a lot of traveling nurses, a lot of professionals that are just looking for something for a little bit. The added advantage of doing the intermediate term rental is once they start cracking down on Airbnbs and short-term rentals, they're not talking about you because you're doing a month up to like six months and they consider short-term rentals, anything up to a month. So that's, that's definitely one of the big advantages going that way. All right. Well, guys, I love it. Keep all the questions rolling in here. Uh, We're going to go and answer um, just a couple more questions on our uh, our planned programming and we'll return to the chat in just a little bit here let's go ahead and do this as far as resale yeah i think we talked a little bit about this before but what's more likely to have um, a better roi if you were like let's just say i've got um, fifty thousand dollars i'm putting into a property you know if i can either do it on new construction, or I can do it on, you know, this, uh, this resale property, which one is more likely to appreciate at a better, uh, better rate and which one am I more likely to have a better ROI on? Tiffany, you want to tackle that one? <laughs> uh, I-, I think it depends on the market it we don't really have a crystal ball as far as what the appreciation would be on new construction versus roi um i i I honestly think it depends i i see new construction homes out there that were built i don't know like two years ago and um they've appreciated i think i don't like I'd say 80,000 maybe. Um, and Bill, you might have a better. Yeah. A yeah better I'd say, you know, one. I'm thinking one we built last year that, uh, that sold for um, 550,000 and about the, the uh, buyer put in about 40,000 in fencing and uh, a yard. And uh, that one will sell now for 650. 650,000. So in one year's time, you know, I guess that's, that's about 60,000 on that particular one. You know, it's like anything location makes a big difference. And uh, if you the most desirable homes, in a lot of cases are large, larger tracts of land, more remoteness, but as a general rule, a lot of people that live in Alaska have to get to an airport to either work up on the North Slope, or to or they work out of their homes now or they need to get to one of the hospitals. And so it has to do a lot with commute time. And so if you're in that 
that. And if you're in military, you have to be able to report to work and be there within one hour from regardless of, of weather conditions, you know, to, you know, and there are some exceptions there. So anytime you can be in a strategic area, that's a great neighborhood with a fast commute time, you're going to see much faster appreciation there. You know, I've seen houses that Peter built um, three years ago that have appreciated a couple hundred thousand dollars in value. But again, that's when the market was really, really shooting up real fast. You know, it's leveling off a little bit. And um, and I think it all, big unknown is interest rates right now. Where are interest rates going? What price can you get into that house for? And uh, how well can you buy it? And how long do you tend to be in? How long do you want to be in that house? But well, we've had great returns and everything seems to be going up and is still going up. And what I've heard for most of the economists, things I've been following is that we do expect prices to continue to go up, not at the rates they were, but you know, the standard increase is three to five percent a year for land or for homes that are built up here. And I'd say we're on par to continue with that rate. And if we do better, then it's a bonus. Right, exactly. Outstanding. So let's uh, let's go and look at this question real quick. So how much money should someone someone plan to have on hand um, as kind of a down payment? And as well, let's let's just change that question. How much money should you plan to have on hand if you want to buy a, a new construction? And let's just say like um, five hundred thousand dollar house. So we're looking at just like a um, you know five hundred thousand dollar house. Um, I know there's there's a lot of variables in there, but trying to account for that, what's kind of a maybe a ballpark range that you guys think that someone should probably plan to have on hand? The depending on the construction company and how much they require for notice to proceed, uh, I think it depends on that. And so let's say, I mean, Bill, what's like an average of notice to proceed? You know, an average would be uh, 3%, uh, 3%. Would be the average. Now we've got what one thing we're doing now as a promotion is and what, what we're now saying more than interest rate is you just have to look at what the payment will be for that house. And is it something you can afford? And is it something that that your family budget is comfortable with? and look at that that payment amount. So one thing we're doing is uh, the builders during the month of February, uh, the developers kicking in $5,000 towards buyer's closing costs. The builder is at least, uh, Elijah Custom Homes is kicking in $5,000 towards buyer closing costs. And some of the lenders are kicking in around $2,000. And that number varies a little bit towards buyer closing costs on new construction. So you'd be looking right there, you're looking at $12,000 if you sign a contract during the month of February. And if you wait till March, then the, the developer 5,000 may go away, but you're still gonna be looking at 2,000 from the lender and $5,000 from, from, from the builder. So there is some assistance in that area. So it's not always as much as you think it is. We put together some cost sheets that I'd be happy to send to you, Jamin, if you wanna put them out online for, three completed five bedroom houses right now and kind of what the payment schedule would be for down payment, everything for buying houses that are complete and based on kind of average interest rates right now. 
So for example, um, and thank you for explaining that bill. If you were to do, uh, let's say 3% for notice to proceed, um, you would give the builder $15,000 on like a $500,000 house. And that money that you give to the builder up front will get applied at the end um, at closing. That'll get subtracted from your your total cash amount due, uh, which includes your down payment and any closing costs left over that the builder or uh, the lender or the the construction company may contribute towards your closing costs. So uh what what you'll need to have if you were to buy let's say like conventional five percent down um that's twenty five thousand of of five hundred thousand uh they say usually closing costs might be around three percent if i price this out like real fast uh down payment and closing costs would probably be around thirty eight thousand dollars um, but if you have builder, lender, um, construction company contributing to that, uh, you're pretty much just coming up with the down payment. So uh, just making sure that you have enough upfront to be able to give to the builder, uh, not cash out of your mattress um, or hidden in your backyard, but funds to be able to give to the builder so that they know that you have, uh, I like to call it skin in the game. Um, and that's you showing that you're committing to uh, having this builder uh, build something for you and, and that you're there till the end to be able to close, which Bill, he's referring to projects that are already complete, move-in ready, right? Um, well, move-in ready or just a brand new construction build. You know, if you want to you pick a floor plan and pick a price point and uh, build it from scratch, the same applies. That, that money's still, same money's still gonna apply, whether it's a new build or an existing home that's moving ready. Yeah, does that, does that kind of give, answer the question? It, you know, it, it really does. So if we're looking at a, um, <clears throat> a uh, new construction home, about $500,000, we'll say, um, without, the plush deal that Bill is talking about where they'll, they'll kick in and, you know, between them, the lender and the, the title company um, kicking in 12,000. Normally they'd be looking at approximately 38,000 or so. I mean, there's a lot of give and take there and there's a ton of variables, but you know, jets just kind of a general ballpark idea. Yeah. Very, I very think. ballpark, very, very estimated. Yeah. It's you know, anywhere think, from yeah. 30, Oh, sorry. Go ahead, Bill. <laughs> well, I'll just, I was just going to add, and, and the thing you want to keep in mind too, is you're still going to need to put in a yard. You're still going to need to get blinds for your windows. And there's going to be other costs you're going to have of getting into that house to live once you get in. So, uh, you know, the budgeting process is really important as you make these decisions and we can, we can help in those areas with uh, giving you some ideas of what it's going to take to get in, looking at what your payment is going to be, looking at what your utilities are going to be, and looking at what kind of costs it's going to be to, uh, you don't have to put in the yard right away, but uh, you probably want to get those blinds right away. Yeah, and, th and this is really where kind of sitting down with Bill and his his builder to, to kind of go over that stuff is so important because you don't want to just barely qualify for it because <laughs> there's 
there's a, there's a lot more that goes into it. So you want to make sure that you're talking with people that are kind of looking out for your best interest and not trying to just barely get you into a house by the skin of your teeth. <laughs> yeah. And builders want to know that you're pre-approved. It really helps that you go over those calculations up front before you meet with the builder, just so that you, you are aware of, of what you can spend your money on. Uh, I, I'd say right now, pre-approval, not counting the application, collecting documentation to verify income and assets, uh, just the pre-approval by itself. It can take me anywhere from an hour to two hours with the client, depending on how many questions they have, just because there's so many different options and variables. And so that's, that's why it's important to go over your pre-approval prior to meeting with the builder, just so that you know what you're spending your money on from the purchase alone. And then factoring in all the other costs, such as what Bill had mentioned with the having blinds and um, all the other things that add to a home. Small details. <laughs> mm -hmm. All right. Well, let's, let's jump back into the, the comments section real quick. Um, and uh, guys, I'm going to say probably another another 20 minutes or so, maybe a little bit longer. Are you guys good? Can we make it another 20? Awesome. Okay. Forging ahead here. Uh, let's see. I'm going to jump into this one. Mr. Jack, so could someone please explain what is going on with the graveyards of housing developments that don't get developed in any way all over the place? Um, I'm trying to think of uh, which maybe which developments would, would fit that description. Um, can you guys offer any clarity off the top of your head? Is that in Alaska? I'm, I'm assuming so, but um, I'm, uh, I'm not thinking of any specific places. Um, maybe like upper, like near the, the Palmer Fishhook Road, just because they're doing so much building and developing up there, maybe, but... Um, that's uh, that's a pretty up and coming area. So it's um, I wouldn't say graveyard. It is uh, it's definitely up and coming and um, gonna make stuff happen. But I don't know. Got got any other insights? Well, I would say there's um, there some of the housing developments are exploding, and there's a lot of building going on. But I would say because of interest rates and because really of inflation more than anything, that the amount of building has, has slowed down. And we're seeing a little uptick, but it's nothing like it was last year. But what we are seeing, I think, is that we've got, um, people are getting a little more used to maybe what the interest rates were as being normal, which is, you know, I think over the last 50 years, and Tiffany, you're the expert here, but I think the average interest rate over the last 50 years is somewhere in the 8% range. So, so yeah. we, still have, we still have decent interest rates, but in relation to COVID rates, they're significantly higher. Um, you know, um, there are so many uncertainties right now that we just don't know it's a little hard to plan where everything is going, but the advice that we're pretty much giving out is everybody needs a house to live in and you have to decide whether you're going to rent or whether you're going to buy. And there's a shortage of housing in Alaska. There are, there's more of a, you know, we're in a seller's market and there is many, many, many more 
needs to buy houses and there are houses. But the need for affordable houses is really the key word. And so if we had, if we had a, you know, if we had 50,000 houses that were all 350,000 in price, they'd be full in no time at all. You know, it just, and that's maybe a little bit of an exaggeration, but the lower price ranges uh, are hard to build at right now because building costs went up so much. But there's a need for more housing. There will always be a need for more housing. Uh, we're seeing more and more people coming from out of state and our population is kind of staying level right now based on the latest statistics that, uh, that you know, were submitted by the National or the, the Alaska Board of Realtors. So I think building is a great way to go. And Tiffany, maybe you might want to just talk about the advantages of of buying versus renting, because I think that kind of gets to the crux of some of these questions. Oh yeah, uh, I have a buy versus rent uh, calculator that I use all the time. It's actually a lifesaver because how do you make sense of renting for twenty six hundred a month, and then your your monthly payment with a mortgage is maybe like thirty three hundred a month? Um, so rent will go up and a 30 year mortgage that's fixed, uh, or if you refinance again for another 30, it's going to stay the same. It's not like the lenders are mad at you and they're going to increase your monthly payment. Um, if anything, like the only thing that might fluctuate is your, your property taxes and, um, and your homeowner's insurance policy that might change. Uh, but if you were to, let's say, buy a house for, uh, I mean, Bill, what's like the average price for the new construction in the ranch? Is that like 500 or? You know, I, yeah, I'd say probably 600,000 is probably a close average right now. Um, 600,000. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I think a lot of the house, houses, there's a few exceptions, but the majority of the houses are going to be you know, 550 to $750,000 in that range. Okay. Know. Okay. And, and that's like a five bedroom, three bath house, two car garage or. Uh, most of those are three car garages, probably four bedrooms, two and a half to three baths as four a general rule. Okay. Um, okay. So and there's certainly I, a lot that are, that are more. Yeah, yeah. And again, this is multiple variables. Everything is, is it, it depends on, on what the math looks like. But if I were to compare, let's say, a $600,000 house uh, to, let's say, I'm renting something similar for 3700 a month, would you say that's fair? Um. You say that one more time. I was just looking at the list of housing prices while you were talking. Sorry about that. Oh, <laughs> no, you're fine. So I, I was just yeah. noticing that there's right now there's like four houses between four ninety nine and five ninety five. Five. We've got and these are ones that are either to be built or in the process of being built with pricing. The high right now is is around eight hundred and forty thousand. We've got an 815, 679.9, and these are all different sizes. Um, you know, but I would say six to, you know, I think 550 to 750 is a good range. When you start getting okay. into bigger houses, that's not an average house. Okay. 
So I, what I could do, so I'm thinking about like a place for maybe 600,000 and right now you're renting a place maybe for 3,500 a month. And uh, just based on uh, the average in the Matsu, the national average rent renewal, um, maybe in, in nine years, it would be your your rental that's 3500 a month might change to like 4700 a month in nine years, right? Um, we're thinking of price. We're thinking of the annual property tax, the monthly homeowner's insurance, uh, how much the tax increase might be in nine years, uh, how long or how much do you pay in HOA? Not There's not a lot of that in the Valley, depending on the neighborhood, but uh, the cost of any sort of repairs or updates, like fancy signs or uh, or fences or landscape. And then the cost to sell, it's 6%. Um, the loan amount, if you were doing, let's just say a conventional loan and you had some contribution towards your closing costs. So let's say you're just coming out of pocket a thousand in closing costs plus your, your down payment. Again, this is totally subject to borrower approval and, and what pricing might look like for each loan type. But the net gain in, in buying a home, um, it, it can be in three or five years, whereas you're paying 100% interest to a landlord um, versus paying 6% or, or whatever, five and a half or seven or to, to a lender it is a significant um, savings. And, and you're putting money back into your pocket whenever you own a home. The cash flow difference, I just calculated like 600,000 compared to renting a place for 3,500 a month. That's almost like $63,000. Um, whereas you, you see an appreciation gain, there's the amortization gain factored into it. Um, you're also thinking of the tax benefits, right? Um, I think I saw a question earlier somebody was asking, should they pay cash or whatever? But because um, they were worried about a lot of people like to pay cash because they worry about paying interest. But uh, if you talk to a tax advisor, you may be able to write off those those how much you're paying in interest um, on your mortgage. Um, and so I that's one of the benefits of owning a home is you have a lot more uh, wiggle room to be able to save money and make a good long term investment and um, you're, you're putting money back into your pocket rather than renting a home and just throwing money to the landlord. Right, I mean, one thing I would add to that too, the biggest line item for most people on their personal budget is gonna be the cost of housing usually. Um, for most people, it's, you know, the ideally no more than a quarter, but for some people it's like, you know, 30, 40, 50% of their take home pay. And, um, yeah, it's it just represents to me a lot more risk renting than buying because when you buy that that mortgage, that monthly payment is more or less going to stay the same. There's not a whole lot of volatility there. With renting, I mean, in Matsu Valley, it went up 11% across the board last year, year over year. So there's a lot more volatility in renting in a time of inflation. It just makes more sense to, to stabilize that the biggest line item on your budget. All right, so we've got 14 questions that I wanna to get to real quick here. We've got about 18 minutes. So we're gonna treat this as a, as a big fire round. 
Um, we're we're going to go you know fast and furious through this stuff here. For those of you in the comments section, if you have any final questions, this is your this is your final call. So get them in while you can. And let's go ahead and get this one real quick from Brandon. Is there is there a limit on the size you will build, small or large? Yes. Uh, generally, there's a minimum size requirement, um, which which oh, it varies subdivision to subdivision. Many times it might be a three bedroom, um, three bedroom, two car garage, two and a half bath. Um, um, you know, I'd say 17, 18, sometimes I've seen it as low as 1500 square feet, but you have to look at each individual subdivision is unique and different and they will have minimums. Generally, there's not a maximum, um, but you get kind of a funny looking house. If you put too big of a house on too small of a lot, it will look disproportional. Um, legally, you can do it as long as your setbacks, uh, you know, your side setbacks, I believe are around 10 feet and 15 feet to the rear. Um, you know, it just, it just varies. Yep, outstanding. Moving on to this one from Michael McClory about how much would it cost to bring services from the property line to a home on a larger parcel, say 10 acres? You know, I, I guess it really depends on the location of the house, but um, I don't know. Do you guys have any other insights you want to add to that? It can be substantial. Um, and I would say generally those costs run on a square, on a lineal foot basis. One of the challenges we have now are the, is because Alaska freezes during the winter time, it can only be done during the summer. And the people that do this, like the, you know, the gas companies and the electrical utilities are very backed up. So it's, it's really a lot of these subdivisions, like the one I, uh, we're building in, uh, have that all in the ground already. So you don't have to deal with that. But if you're doing a remote area, you're going to probably want to get that done one year and then plan on building the following year would be the advice I would give on something like that. And those those can be estimated. I don't know what those costs are, but I could certainly get back to you, Jamin, with an, with an average cost per lineal foot for, you know, gas, electric and so on, uh, uh, you know, that we you could do as a follow up if you'd like. Yeah, but uh, but yeah, you, it's it's going to be kind of spendy. So, you know, if that's something you want to do, make sure you call the, the gas company, the utility company and um, see if you can get estimates from them ahead of time because it can get spendy. Yeah. So question coming in from Kimberly King. Um, Opsitos. I know I'm probably mispronounced that. Is this discussion only about building in a development? We live out of state and purchase land near Willow. How do we find a builder looking to build a smaller cabin like home? We've got that question coming in from uh, from Brandon as well. So, you know, how, because uh, I've been in talks with some people trying to find a builder near Talkeetna, Willow, and it's it's a rare breed of a builder that I can find out there that's doing it. So, any well, insights? You know, um, the, 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 there, are, there are builders that specialize in that. And what they do is they bring they build bring everything in in skids over the winter time into the remote property and then they build during the summertime and they you know you have to dig put your foundations in or your sauna tubes or whatever the foundation is going to be depending on the size of the cabin put that in in the summertime build during the summer and we do get 
a lot of earth movement up here from the freeze thaw year to year. So that can move a cabin around. In these remote cabins, they put a lot of jacks on them so they can level themselves out. Uh, but there, there are builders that do specialize in that. Uh, I had a friend of mine that, that had two cabins built on his 40 acres and they turned out beautiful, but one of them really jacked from year one to year two. And they came back under their warranty and totally leveled it out and it's been fine ever since that. But you definitely want to find someone that that is their specialty um, you and, and that they're licensed and bonded to do it correctly. Yeah. And if you can go ahead and send me the contact information as soon as we're done here, because, yeah, I've uh, I've been trying so hard to find a builder in that area. And, yeah, it sounds like a happy my, to. I, I will I'll have to reach out tomorrow, uh, but I'll, I'll uh, reach out to my my friend and. Uh, and I'll ask him uh, who it was that built the house to get the contact information. Outstanding. You're awesome. All right. Victoria, how does shipping uh, supplies affect building new construction homes or are most things built out there from local companies? Wondering if it takes much longer factoring in shipping. So, yeah, I mean, it seems like most of the wood is is imported just because most of our wood here, at least in South Central Alaska, it's it's really not lumber. Like it's it's like usually small skinny little trees um, due to the the climate and the the cold, and um, yeah, not a whole lot of lumbering going on in this area, just from what I've seen. Yeah, the, a lot the, of rocks. The lots of rocks. Got Lots that. of rock. Um, <laughs> you know, a, a lot of a lot of the building materials for a lot of the homes in the valley are coming out of some of the big box stores like Lowe's uh, or Home Depot, especially Lowe's. They 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 do a lot. Um, there are individual cabinet makers that build cabinets up here, which are a little bit better as far as the, the supply cycle of having them built locally. Um, some of the cabinets that we used to always order out of places like Lowe's or others are having distribution problems now. And when you do ship a long distance cabinets, especially for a kitchen or the bathrooms, they're subject to damage. And if they take a long time to get and they're damaged, it takes a long time to get finished and, and replaced. So uh, a lot of the builders are using local cabinet makers now when they can. All the lumber is brought up really from the lower 48 and brought in, you know, the lumber yards bring that in. And, uh, you know, a lot of that lumber is being cut down in Oregon from what I've seen. Yep, absolutely. I mean, I was talking with somebody, they said that like after COVID, like the, the, the mills down there were just running 24 seven, just doing anything they could to try to get caught up. So, yeah. You know, cause the contractors are competing against where all these disasters are taking place in the U.S. as well and where they're having the damage from the hurricanes and everything else. So there's a real demand for that due to some of the weather that we're having around the U S. Yeah. It's, it's kind of, um, it's kind of a blessing and a curse being so interconnected. You get all the benefits of, of, um, the world and you also get some of the problems too. All right. Good question here in from Kalex. Is there anything to do that would make buying raw land in the winter less of a bad idea? Worried about drainage slope on part of the lot per the borough map. Um, I mean, maybe photos, but I think those, those survey like the borough map and they've got some stuff from EPA to, to kind of give you an idea for where their lowlands are. 
probably going to be your best resource, but what do you think? Well, I think a lot of times the developers are going to have all that taken into account with the slope and with the drainage and with those types of things. And usually the first year the roads go in, they don't pave them because there's going to be settling, you know, from year to year due to the, the types of weather that we've been having. Um, some there are some areas like, for example, we were in Eagle River looking at some land that was under about three feet of snow right now. And you absolutely have no idea what's down there or what it really looks like. Uh, as a general rule, if there's a lot of trees on the lot, you can build earlier in the spring because the ground doesn't freeze as much when there's roots there. But if it's if it's an open area without trees, it's going to be a later start to build. Um, you know, you can look at summer shots uh, at some of the things, but I think if if my advice is, I think you're better to look at it when it's uh, when it's either been very windy and the snow has blown off of it or which has happened recently in the valley or or look at it uh, in the in the spring or summer and build the following year awesome all right uh bill let's try to give you a, a little bit of a break here just momentarily <laughs> so ella um, i have an open mind I but bad for bill <laughs> swap Swap them out, swap them out. So he has an open mind, but we have somebody thinking of retiring on the Kenai Peninsula out of Soldatna, Kenai, Sterling, on Kinsilov. Which place would you consider the best area to build or buy? Hmm, that's a, that's an interesting one. And I really wish we had a, we had Jonathan Wheeler on here to talk about like yeah. Kenai specifically. Um, I would personally go with Kenai just because like, I know that area, like, you know, better just from all the dip netting I've done down there, but and I'm not really an expert in any one of those areas, but I don't know, Tiffany, you're um, one that's traveled the world of Alaska at least. So any insights from you? <laughs> uh, I think so. Soldatna, Soldatna and Kenai are very close to each other. You They're the same thing, just don't tell them that. <laughs> yeah, it's kind of like, it's not as spread out as like Wassel and Palmer are. But um, I, I love the Kenai Peninsula because I love fishing. And um, I'm also a big fan of all of the places that you can uh, hike and, and you're by the ocean at the same time. And you've got that small town friendly vibe in the Kenai Peninsula. Um, and I have a lot of friends from there or they live there and I'm friends with Jonathan too. Uh, but Sterling and Kasilov are a little bit more of like the outskirt communities. So if you like to live a little bit further out of like a town, let's say like maybe 25 minutes or so, uh, you you might like Sterling or Kasilov better. Stir when you're driving from Anchorage, um, you're hitting Sterling first, and then it's Soldatna, and then if you go right, it's Kenai. But if you keep going towards Homer, um, that's when you get to uh, the rest of the smaller communities. So it just depends on on how far out do you want to live from Kenai or, or Soldatna. Do you want to be five minutes from Walmart? Then you might want to live in somewhere in Kenai. Um, but if you want to be near Kroger with AKA Fred Myers, you might want to live in Soldatna. Um, 
Uh, Solgata has a lot of central uh, places that you can go to, so the convenience is there. Uh, but if you want just a little bit of space, you might want to go further out. Uh, Nikiski is in that area as well and has a lot of good places. Um, it just depends on, I, I would recommend exploring the whole entire area before you decide to plant any roots, uh, just to get a feel for, for what area you like best. Um, but yeah, that's my opinion. <laughs> yeah. I mean, absolutely reach out to me as well. Cause I'll, I'll put you in contact with someone like that specializes in that area. Cause I mean, right now I'm taking, um, I mean, me personally, if I'm talking about the Kenai, I'm taking, you know, big, you know, big swings in the dark here, just trying to hit something. So not very accurate at all. And, and so, I've spent a lot of time down in the Homer area and across the inlet from there over in Halibut Cove, you know, over the last 35 years. And don't underestimate Homer, Alaska, which is right on the ocean and probably one of the most picturesque places in all of Alaska. I mean, it is stunning and it's a big enough community. You can winter there. And uh, there's a lot of very famous people that are building homes down there that uh, just come here during the summers or part of the year. Yep. I used to live in Homer too. And um, I, I love that community as well. And um, the food is good. The, the atmosphere is fun. And, and during the winter, it's very mellow. Um, the, the fishing is excellent. And um, I, I paddleboard sometimes if the water's calm. So there's a lot of really fun trails and, and yurts you could stay in too, but there's a lot of places to explore on the Kenai Peninsula. It's probably one of my most favorite areas to just take a road trip to. So we've got a comment coming on from Karmic and I had a moose in my front door yesterday here in Anchorage and there, um, there are bear a few blocks down. Um, I'm, Kind of unclear as to whether or not the bears like live like a couple blocks down or what's going on there but yeah no problems with humans so far so situational awareness is yeah key love it all right just a couple more questions guys can you hang in there just a couple more with me yeah just to answer that same question we've had bear in our yard moose in our yard my dogs have been porcupine in our front yard but we sit next to 76 acres of parkland so expect oh, wow. anything if you live here i mean i've gotten door knocking before and uh, kind of these more developed subdivisions at anchorage and i'll knock on a door and they're like uh yeah um hey great to see you here man but you know there was like you know a bear sighting like a couple blocks that way so <laughs> just fyi so it really happens everywhere so question coming in from YTAC, how do remote homes without a street address get homeowners insurance order services, et cetera, that usually require you to give an address? I can help answer that if you want me to. Okay. Uh, so I hear this question a lot um, because some people want to keep their remote property and move into town. And uh, when insurance comes up, they already have an insurance company that's willing to insure the property that's remote. And so it depends on the insurance company. Uh, there's a lot of good referral partners out there that I could send Jamin to provide. Um, and I'm sure you already know Jamin who that might be. But uh, as far as ordering services, such as like Wi-Fi, um, 
my friends in all the villages, I've seen them use GCI as a big one, the GCI company out there, um, which is statewide, but also Starlink <laughs> is another good one. And then um, it, when you do provide an address, if you don't have a street address, you can um, give a directional address. And I, I have to use directional addresses sometimes when people are moving from another small community. And so even that the place I grew up in, we had to give a directional address. And so it, that can be White House on this road or whatever. Um, and you can, you can call your local post office too, or that local post office in that area just for them to help you get a general idea on what kind of address you should use for a physical location. Outstanding. So quick question here from the Hotshot 01, Radiant Heating. Um, let's see, kind of talking about what it is, simply put, that is uh, putting water tubes in the cement foundation that heat up the house. How long does that last? And what if you do if the tubing um, expires someday? Radiant heating is probably some of the best heating you can put into the house. Um, a lot of the tubes and so forth that they're putting in for that now are are plastic and are, are much more stable than uh, some of the metal that had been used, uh, you know, previously. Um, radiant is definitely the way to go because it gives you the most even heat. Um, but if you get a problem in the floor with with something like that, then it would it would have to be repaired by someone that specializes that where they're going to have to get in and break it up and get in there and, and fix it. Um, I have, we've not been doing a lot of homes with radiant heating, um, but it is certainly the ideal way to go. And there are host houses going into the subdivision that way. And it's really nice because you got a warm floor to walk on and uh, it works especially nice down in the, the, especially if you've got a walkout basement and it's, you know, it's generally cooler down there. You've got a nice warm floor. Ideal way to go. If your budget allows it, absolutely way to go. Outstanding. And just kind of a, a ballpark. I mean, we're not looking for exact numbers here, but um, how much would it cost to put in radiant heating versus something like forced air? Like, are we talking like a, a $10,000 upgrade or... You know, I just asked to build uh, a builder that just puts them in his house, uh, and I it was I I'm gonna go by memory, but I think it was somewhere around twenty five thousand dollars more to put that in versus the standard forced air. And that's uh, that's why a lot of people go with forced air. <laughs> but no, I agree. Like it, it's totally a game changer when you've got that in floor radiant heating, though it's spectacular because heat rises you know and that's it's just a perfect way to go you know and that another interesting thing just had a real interesting presentation this week on you know solar works really well in alaska which most people don't realize and it can be put on the side of the building and it's a great way to lower your overall costs in new construction outstanding so last question here Coming in from Mr. Brandon, why should you build instead of buying? So that uh, seems like a nice question to kind of wrap up on. Well, I, I, the, my favorite analogy is um, if you had a choice of driving a brand new car or driving a used car, which one would you prefer? You know, um, 
if you know, the reason most people build is because they want to develop the floor plan with the builder. They have certain ideas of how they want that house to be. Um, you know, as we get older, we like to have it on one level. Um, some people require more square footage. If you're a young family, you maybe want a separated area like a walkout basement for the kids to play in where you don't have to hear them when you're with your friends upstairs. Uh, you know, there's so many variables, but the main thing is you're buying a house with a warranty that you don't have to fix anything or take care of. And you can call the builder for the first year and you, with an extended warranty, you know, you're, you're covered for the length of time that you want to be covered, generally, you know, a couple of years up to maybe, maybe five years. Um, but it's mainly so you can select everything and build it just the size you want and at the budget that you want, uh, in the location that you want, right down to which direction that that beautiful deck is going to face to get the best sun. Absolutely. So I know I said that was going to be the last question, but uh, Tiffany, this one's for you. So if you have <laughs> if you have a lot of cash but no job, can you get a mortgage? That is a great question. I have actually a couple of clients right now where I'm running into this situation. Uh, one of them, it, 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 they work part time. I have another client um, doesn't work and. Uh, depending on if you have any sort of stream of income, I can factor that in like social security, retirement, disability, uh, those types of things, things that I can trace or document, I can use that for income. Uh, but as far as funds or cash, uh, we're looking at traceable funds, right? So that is, and it's because of anti-money laundering laws and that's a whole nother thing to talk about. But, um, we're verifying that the money is in your bank account first in order to be able to use that towards what is called asset depletion income. And um, so we would, we would look at your bank account and it would be two months, most recent bank account statements, most likely. But um, in order to be able to use your assets uh, as a, a basis of qualifying income, uh, the eligibility requirements are different with Fannie Mae versus Freddie Mac guidelines, but it uh, has to be a one to two unit primary residence or a second home. Um, it can be a, you can go through a purchase or it can be a rate term refinance transaction only. Uh, maximum loan to value ratio, which is like how much money you're doing for a down payment, it'd be 20% down, so 80% loan to value ratio. Um, we take uh, depending on which program we use that allows asset depletion income. Uh, it, it depends on what, where those assets are, are sitting. And then we like divide it by a certain number of months, regardless of the loan term. Um, I'm just looking at my notes from the last one I looked at, and it, it really does depend on where the funds are sitting. Um, so it, it can't really be money that's like, in your safe or even though it's you know it's locked up but it has to be seasoned funds in a financial institutions little that, that's all verified yeah mm -hmm. and i don't know if this gives any clarity or not but he does have it says you know it's um it's about nine hundred thousand legal cash and wants a 350 house in wasilla i don't know like 
seems it, like it, it, there'd be some advantages just using cash, but I'll, I'll. Yeah, there is advantage uh, advantages. It just, it depends on what kind of account that, that those funds are in. I won't be able to use like dollar bills that you count in a cash machine. Um, but if I can verify the funds and trace the funds in a, uh, from a institutional source, uh, whether it's uh, stocks or, or your, your bank account, um, like your checking account, your savings account, your retirement account, uh, we would have to verify that. And then it totally depends on the application and your credit um, and what your whole, what your credit score looks like. It, there's a other things that play into the application, not just like how much money you have. And so uh, it, it totally depends on your application. <laughs> Absolutely. So Morris, I think probably the best thing you can do, uh, reach out to myself or Tiffany and um, uh, we'll, uh, we'll certainly talk a little bit. Uh, my contact information is like all over the place. So you should be able to find that and I'll just get you in contact with Tiffany and we can talk some more um, and uh, see if we can find something that's going to make sense. Uh, best, best sense, most sense. There we go for you. All right. Well, everyone, thank you very much for, for jumping on and uh, making this uh, another great live stream. I hope you got a lot of great value out of it. Uh, Bill and Tiffany, want to thank you guys um, a ton for um, jumping on here and contributing your expertise. And um, if you guys want to get in contact with um, either of these great people, uh, we'll have their contact information in the, in the, uh, the description section for the video as soon as we get this all published up and all ready to go. And it'll be waiting there for you. But again, thank you very much. And everybody have a good night.